0: This episode brought to you by the Velvet Hammer Podcast.
1: This is Young Lawyer Rising from the American Bar Association Young Lawyers Division and Legal Talk Network. I'm Sonia Russo. Most lawyers remember what their first two years of practicing law were like. I know I do, and there were definitely some lessons and wisdom that I wish I'd known then, but that I've learned now through hard work and experience. This episode, I'm talking to a fantastic panel of young lawyers who've been practicing for several years. They share what they wish they'd known about topics like how to set boundaries at work and how to recover from making a mistake. Whether you're in your first two years of practice or beyond, the advice our guests shared with me is insightful. I hope you enjoy listening to our conversation as much as I enjoyed being part of it. I'm so pleased to welcome an amazing panel of fantastic lawyers for our discussion today about what we wish we'd known when we were brand new lawyers. Why don't each of you introduce yourselves by telling us your name, how long you've been practicing law, and what you've done throughout your career? Let's start with Danny, and then Sylvia and Jess. Thank you, Sonia.
0: Thank you for having us. I'm so excited about this conversation. As you know, I'm Danny Borrell. I am a partner at Brazil Saxian Wilson, which is a private firm in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. So I focus on commercial litigation and healthcare litigation. I've been at Brazil since I graduated law school seven years ago, which makes me feel super old. So I've had a pretty straightforward path between law school and then partnership at a private firm. So I'm hoping that'll kind of lend a valuable perspective today as as we talk through some of these issues of being a lawyer.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think it certainly will. <laughs> Sylvia? Thanks, Sonia. Happy to be here. Uh, my name is Sylvia, everybody. I am calling in from Livonia, Michigan, which is around the metro Detroit area. I graduated and got my license in 2014. So it's almost been 10 years, not quite yet. So I'm around that like seven year mark right now, I believe. And I had a little bit of an adventurous path after law school, so I've had a few different jobs. Uh, right now, I'm in litigation, though I'm doing medical malpractice and business disputes. Okay, that
1: sounds fascinating. I know memel can get real, real fast, uh, so mm-hmm. that, that sounds super interesting, especially your winding path, which we'll talk about. I have also had one of those. Uh, <laughs> Jess?
3: Hi. So I have been practicing since 2014, coming straight on to my seventh year. And right now I'm doing local government. I guess it can be litigation, but it's primarily consulting and advising the different departments that serve our local governments. And it's been a pretty winding path for me as well. I've done many other fields i've been a staff attorney at a in a circuit court i've done divorce law i've done traffic cases i've done insurance defense but i think local government is where i want to stick it out for the long term
1: yeah that i think that makes sense and and i am also a government attorney so you know <laughs> I, I i definitely understand that and support that Sylvia, you know, you mentioned that you've done a couple of different things. Do you want to talk a little bit about what you've done before you reached your current firm?
2: Sure. I mean, so since I graduated in 2014, I know a couple others on this call can, you know, probably relate. The economy was getting better, but it wasn't all that great still. And although I did well in law school, it was kind of hard to find that first job. So I did. Basically a bridge to practice program a few months after getting my license, and I worked with startups and entrepreneurs, and it was amazing. I really loved it. I learned about 3D printing, technology, drones, and that sparked my, I guess, entrepreneurial character. And then from there, I, you know, just had some odd and even contract jobs, if you will. I even did some small business consulting for a little while. And then I spent three-plus years doing heavy litigation, doing no-fault work here in Michigan. And that was my last big role before I landed at my current job.
1: Okay. And when you say no-fault, what does that mean? Is that a family law term for divorce stuff, or am I way off base?
2: So, um, and my apologies, it is something that I believe only Michigan and maybe one or two other states have. It's, it's auto litigation. So auto insurance work.
1: Okay, so I, I was way off, way off base. Okay, well, I, I'm really glad. That, I mean, maybe if I didn't know, other people won't know. So thank you. And no, thank you I for asking know, to Sonia. clarify. I didn't know. Okay. Thank you. I feel I feel better now. Um, so thinking back to your first year of practice, what is the first thing that comes to mind when you think of what you wish someone had told you back then? You know, as an example for me, I spent my first year of practice at what was then the largest law firm in New Mexico. I was a litigation associate. And I wish that someone had told me that it's okay to be stressed out about billable hours, right? But that I should try really hard not to let it get to me because there were definitely people at my firm that were not meeting their minimum, right? So like as stressed out mm-hmm. as I was, like that didn't. That didn't make sense because there were other people actually working less than me. Um, so, so, <laughs> so, so if you can think of something from your first year of practice that you wish you'd known, let's start with uh, Sylvia and then Jess and then Danny.
2: Sure. Uh, so, I mean, first year of practice, and I might even have to expand a little bit beyond that because of my route. But one of the things that stands out to me that I wish I'd known beforehand is that you don't have to wait for things to be handed to you, you know, if there's a case you want to work on, if there's an assignment or even area of practice within your law firm that you'd like to, you know, dive into, you should go and get it. You know, you should ask for it. Be diligent and speak up for yourself because otherwise nobody's going to know that you want it, right, unless you say something about that. Now, even though you might think, hey, if I were in their position, I'd know. I'd be paying attention, right? That's not necessarily the case. Other folks are busy and they have things that they need to focus on too. And now depending on their reaction after you go for what you want, that may give you more information on whether this is a long-term fit for you or not, right? They may basically put up a boundary and not let you get what it is that you want, or they may work with you to help you figure it out. And I wish somebody in law school had taught me about assertiveness. you know, I don't think that's something that we focus on too much, at least not when I was in school.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that's definitely... um, I didn't really start to figure that out and kind of come into my own on that until just the last two or three years. So I think that's a really important point. Jess?
3: So one thing I remember distinctly from my first year of practice was just how fast a partner just throws you into... The courtroom. I guess it's not the traditional big law path. I did a fellowship after graduation which um, which let me work for a city attorney's office. It's sort of like an internship, but the law school would fund you and give you a stipend for it. So the city didn't pay you. It was a law school that paid you. And about three months in, I got my first full-time attorney job And they just said, you know, here are your cases, go. And I don't think anything in law school really, even their legal skills practice from my law school, did anything to really prepare me for that. I didn't realize back then, it's like, it's okay to not know what to do. And it's definitely okay to ask your partner, even though he just hired you, and you convinced him that you know, you're a good, you're a good hire, but there's still that little bit of hand holding that you might need in the beginning. And to be okay with that was definitely something I had to learn. I didn't, instead of just stressing out at your computer, trying to figure everything out by yourself, you know, use your partner as a resource. They're, they're there to answer your questions. So, and most importantly, you want to get it right. The client's paying you for it. So I think that's the most important things that they don't really tell you in law school about, you know, you're working for a client. This may not be the end of the world for them, but it's still pretty important. And they're paying you money for it. So you want to get it right. And if you don't know what you're doing, just ask.
1: Yeah, I think that's really great advice. And I also think that's interesting in the context of, you know, for example, billable hours, right? Because, I mean, if I'm a partner, I would much rather than my associate actually just ask me what <laughs> like yeah. if they have a question, <laughs> as opposed to spinning their wheels for, like, 50 hours, and then you're like, oh, my God, like, right. what is this bill? And now I have mm-hmm. to cut it, right? Yeah. Um, so I, I think that's I think that's really great advice. Daddy? So for me, I think what I figured out later on that I wish I'd
0: had a better handle on my first year is that today's opposing counsel is very possibly tomorrow's co-counsel. You know, I did kind of have a straight litigation associate to partner PATH, and I've always worked in kind of the same area of the law and in the same state. So I'm dealing in a very small circle, relatively speaking. And so when I came out of law school, I was so gung-ho about litigation. You know, trial ad and mood court and competing and winning competitions that you get here, and you just want to show everyone else in the firm how you can just dominate in the courtroom. And sometimes you forget that small things like, extensions on deadlines, Mm -hmm. as aggravated as you are that the other side is asking for them, like those things don't make or break your case. And they can instead just, you know, create bad rapport with your opposing counsel that when the next big case comes around and y'all happen to be the two defense attorneys on the same side, you know, then you have a little bit of that working relationship lost because maybe you should have been a bit more respectful on the front end. So that's, you know, my big lesson is today's opposing counsel can be tomorrow's co-counsel. But I also think what Sylvia said is really important about being assertive. You know, several years into practice, I looked around and realized there was certain area of litigation where I hadn't gotten as much experience as I I wanted to feel confident. And when I talked with all my partners, it was funny because they all thought that the other one was bringing me on these, like, adventures to have that experience. So they all kind of had this moment of, like, circle finger pointing where they realized everyone thought the other person was, like, providing me with this experience and they weren't. But because I brought it up, you know, directly, they were very quick to say, yes, we want you to be trained in that. Like, let's get you specific training and address the problem. But had I not been assertive and had I had that kind of backseat approach of, well, clearly they know, you know, Mm -hmm. that I haven't been, you know, to many depositions. I I think I would still be in the same boat today had I not been a little bit assertive about that point.
1: I think that's a really great point. And I know that for sure that when it comes to things like skills development and things like that, you know, would, would each of you agree with me that at the end of the day, you have to be the one to both evaluate that for yourself and then also to... Step up and and assert yourself, and say, "Hey, you know, this is a specific skill that I haven't gotten yet, and I want experience in it. Let's go do that."
2: Of course, yeah,
3: I would agree. That was my experience. I would also add that if you get lucky, you'd find those attorneys that will ask you, like, "What are you interested in? What do you want to do? Do you want just a taste of everything?" And I've had partners that go above and beyond and trying to involve you in different things um, just so you might have a taste of one thing or another. For example, I used to be a private firm attorney. They got me into aviation law. I have no idea. Still probably don't know much about aviation, but (laughs) (laughs) why not? I mean, it's regulatory work. Uh, I'm still doing research and we have that foundation we got from law school. So I'd say... If there's an opportunity to do something different, you know, especially if a partner's offering it, I'd say just go for it and see see where it can take you,
1: yeah, absolutely. I think that that has been that has certainly been something that I've tried to stay open to, particularly those unexpected opportunities. I think that's important, so switching gears a little bit, let's talk about boundaries at work because those are important and i think that they're incredibly difficult to set when you're a first year lawyer when you're a second year lawyer actually i mean probably even you know several years in i think it's probably really hard to set those boundaries so do each of you set any boundaries at work in terms of you know communications or just you know there's a certain number of hours that you're going to work in a week and then after that you sort of call it do any of you set boundaries like that and and if so what are they And most importantly, how do you do that? And if you don't set boundaries, why not? So Jess, let's start with you and then Danny and Sylvia. So for me, it really depended on where I was
3: working. When I was in private practice, I didn't set those boundaries. And at least for the partners, I set boundaries when I had my own clients, especially in the family law field. I've had clients ask for my cell phone number. And then you just politely decline and say, look, if the courts are closed, I can't help you. I got that great advice from one of my coworkers to just say that, like, if the courts are closed, we can't help you. If it's a true emergency, call the police. And if it's anything that's lower than that, it can wait until the next day. And clients have been very understanding about that. But now since I work for local government, it's a lot easier to set boundaries. It's five o'clock, I'm done. Anything can be done next day. And I have a really good boss right now who tells me to go home when he realizes it's past five. He's like, go home, What, what, what are you doing here? So those are the easy boundaries to set. My husband also works in local government and he tries to set them as well because if you start getting emails After hours and you reply to those emails, you're kind of slowly creeping away at your boundary line where you're giving other people like, oh, he'll answer an email at seven o'clock. Maybe I can push it next time. So Mm. learning from him, for me, it's very clear that five o'clock is the end of my day. And I don't, I'm not going to think about work again until 830
1: in the morning. I love that. I think that's fantastic. (laughs) Yeah. And I think and I think that's a really interesting point, too, about once you set the boundary, not chipping away at it. Right. Like not otherwise setting some expectations that folks can expect a reply. And actually, before we get too far down this path, Jess, I just wanted to circle back to you briefly. I know you can't say which city you you're in because you work for local government. But can you tell us what state you're from? Sure.
3: Um, I practice in Virginia mainly. I'm barred also in D.C. and Maryland, but I haven't actually used those. So I, my strong suit is Virginia law. I'm sticking with Virginia law for, for the long term. Yes, the great commonwealth of <laughs> Virginia. <laughs> yes, we, we must specify we're not a state, we're a commonwealth. <laughs> um, but actually also going, forgot to mention that point about you know, boundaries weren't really there with partners. I think it's just how private practice goes. I've worked on weekends. I've worked, you know, all through the night. I remember distinctly talking to a partner about a pleading he wants revised. And this was a Friday chat. And he's like, okay, well, I want to review your next draft on Monday, which means that's weekend work. So that wasn't really even a question or a discussion. It was just, it was expected of me. And I go in knowing this. So it's not like it's a surprise. So I'm okay with that. It's just there, there's just a different expectation from your partners. And just as long as you know what those expectations are, I don't think, you know, I'm not going to complain about it because I I walked into this freely and now I walked out of it and I can, I can leave at five. So.
1: Yeah, I think that's, I think that's a great point. And, you know, and I think that's right actually for what it's worth. I mean, Having both worked at a law firm and having been in government, I think that's right. But Danny, I'm actually really curious as to what your perspective is on this because you're a partner. You're a partner in a <laughs> law firm, but you've lived that associate life. So I'm I'm curious to know like what your I guess position is on this now that you've kind of you know made it to that level where where you're a partner now. So you get to make some of these decisions.
0: Well, I will say Jess's assessment is not wrong, but yeah, I do set some boundaries. But I mean, I think it's kind of to be expected, the boundaries that I put into place now for myself as a seven-year lawyer and a partner are a little bit different than those that I was able or I felt I was able to put in place my first or second year. One of the things that I always tell young associates is if you do work really hard your first couple of years and kind of set a reputation as a hard worker, it almost gives you more flexibility on the back end because then No matter what you do, people already have it cemented in their mind that you're a hard worker. And then, you know, you may stop working late nights or weekends, but people will forever kind of have that reputation in your mind. You know, but when I think about my boundaries, there is one boundary that I have always maintained from day one, you know, to current day. And for me, that's my morning start time. You know, our office opens to our staff around 8.30 is our opening time. Our lawyers all come in at various times. Some come in really early, some come in really late. From the beginning, I've always been here on time by 8.30, but I'm not going to be here before that because I work out in the morning. So that's the one part of my day that unless I have to go to court, unless I'm traveling, unless we are, you know, all hands on deck, trial prep. I'm going to work out in the morning and then I'll be here by 830 to start my day. But, you know, now that I'm a seven year lawyer, I have a little bit different boundaries. I do have a 510 leave time and that's because I have daycare pickup, which if anybody tries to interfere, I remind them that I get charged by the minute that I'm late. So when I have like a 510 alarm and when it goes off, I am standing up and leaving like I don't care what conversation we're in. This is my new boundary in in life where I'm at right now. But I also think that Jess made a good point about communication. One of my boundaries, again, was text communication. I am not a fan of my clients texting me. You know, I'm not a fan of my fellow attorneys texting me either, but I understand there are certain reasons. But particularly with clients, I try to redirect those communications back to email. And my philosophy is... I'm seeing my emails at all hours of the night, just like I would a text. So at least that level of like work boundary gives me a little bit of privacy to feel like my cell phone, my text messages, like that's my private life. Those are my friends, my family. I can still have fun and like not expect, you know, client text messages on a Saturday while I'm like trying to tailgate for the LSU game or something. So all of that is to say, I do think private practice comes with some harder expectations for your hours, your nights, your weekends. Some of that, I definitely went into it kind of like Jess said. I knew what I was getting into, and I I think there are payoffs that come with with that type of lifestyle. But if you do set some clear boundaries early on, like I do with my start time, my 8.30 start time, and if you do make up for that in other areas by working hard, I think that's the proper way to kind of have your boundaries established and, and not really get any pushback on it.
1: Okay. And I think and I think that's all fair. And you know what, I actually really appreciate how candid you are about that. And and you too, just that, you know, it, it seems to me that, you know, tell me if I'm if I'm not understanding this correctly, but that I think that you're all just like, well, listen, we knew what we were getting into with private practice, there are benefits to being in private practice. And, you know, maybe there's some disadvantages. And that's one of them. I hope you're enjoying our conversation so far. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. We'll be right back.
0: The Velvet Hammer podcast is a down and dirty look at what really makes trial lawyers tick. Nationally recognized and award-winning plaintiff attorney, Karen Kohler is an aggressive, charismatic, and dominating litigator wrapped up in a sweet little mommy-grandma package. Her colorful stories teach lessons drawing upon 35 years of experience including the sensational four-month Ride the Duck trial in Seattle. Subscribe for free on your favorite podcasting app.
1: Welcome back, listeners. We return now to my conversation with Danielle Burrell, Sylvia Mansour, and Jess Arena. So, Sylvia, what do you think about this conversation about boundaries? You know, do you set them at work? If you do, what kinds of boundaries do you set? And how do you set them?
2: Uh, of course Sonia I, I think boundaries are especially important and I agree with Jess and Danny on them I set my own boundaries and mine I think are just pretty well communicated and mine are a little bit value based too so my boundaries focus more upon you know my ethical moral and health-based interests and things that are important to me you know I don't want those things compromised in my life. And if you're open and, you know, regularly interact with others, I think they understand what your boundaries are. But the trick is to act and do something when they aren't respecting your boundaries. You know, otherwise you're going to find yourself in an uncomfortable position and in a situation, you know, at work where perhaps you're gritting your teeth and you're stressing out over things that you shouldn't be because that kind of stuff can take... A mental and physical toll on you when you're not saying something to have people respect your boundaries. And acting upon that, that could be speaking up and professionally confronting somebody, maybe going to HR or simply just up and reevaluating your current job and whether you need to find a new one, whatever is right for you.
1: So I have a couple of follow-up questions, actually, about that. Sure. Um So I think the first is you mentioned how some of your boundaries are, are value-based, right? Can you talk a little bit about which values you're talking about in terms of that boundary setting?
2: So for me, it's... Um I guess my, the values that I would consider are you know, my ethics, my ethics, my morals, the way that I think that the world should be operating, and then my mental and physical health. So for instance, anything can fall under that. Let's say that I do have a situation where I'm being overworked, right? Night, day, weekend. That hasn't happened for me, thankfully. But let's say that happens. That's going to take a toll on me mentally and physically. So that's where I need to set a boundary or if I'm just caught up in a predicament where I've got a toxic work environment, that to me, you know, that can hit upon ethical and moral issues for me. So that's something where I have to put my foot down. And I have to have others respect my boundaries.
1: So I think that, you know, especially for lawyers in their first and, and second year of practice, that's who I think, you know, we're trying to talk to, it might be difficult to figure out when is something a toxic work environment versus when is it just one of the situations where, you know, like Danny and Jess said, you just, you got to put the time in, right? You just you got to put the time in. And, you know, sometimes it's going to be a lot of work, right? Sometimes it's going to be at times that aren't great, but you just have to. What would you say to folks to try to figure out when it's a situation when they have to just say, no, I really need to reevaluate what's happening here and, and maybe find a different job?
2: Sure. You know, actually, I think this is where uh, mentorship can come in handy. If you have mentors in the community, whether it's the legal community, otherwise, whether it's somebody that works with you or somebody that's completely outside of your organization or even practice area. They can help you in that regard and allow you to figure out what is and isn't, you know, the norm or what is and isn't healthy. Okay. And, you know,
1: just one other follow-up question that I think you know, and and we're going to talk about mentors actually because I personally think that's a really important topic for for first and second year lawyers to hear about. And and I've been very privileged and lucky to have some wonderful mentors in my life and in my professional life. So so we should definitely talk about that. But um, you mentioned potentially, for example, going to HR. And I guess I guess I'm going to push back on that a little bit and ask okay. whether that's something a first and second year lawyer would feel like they could do at a firm, and if not. What would you tell them to do, right? Like, because I mean, there must—I'm sure there's got to be some way to address something that's happening. Short of that, if they don't feel like they can do it, but what what would you say to a first and second year lawyer who who might be dealing with that situation, but is like, you know, I just don't think I can go to HR on this one,
2: right? And I mean, I don't think that's necessarily you know a first step because if you can figure something else like in your own uh, capacity, in your own way with professionally confronting somebody. I think the word confrontation sometimes has such a negative, you know, meaning or connotation. But if you do it professionally, right, if you talk to somebody and if you let them know that, let's say something that they're doing is bothering you, that in and of itself could be a first step and things can be done there. And I think any first year I mean, in in my personal and humble opinion, I think any first year or second year can do that. And then at the end of the day, you need to figure out what is important to you in your overall life. Yes, we're attorneys. And yes, we worked very, very hard to become attorneys. But we are more than just, you know, attorneys at the end of the day. And you need to figure out whether, you know, your current situation is, again, worth your health, worth your mental, physical health or whatever it is that it may be that's bothering you. I hope that answers your question.
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, I think that's right. We're all people. We're all whole people and we're all right. more than our professions. We're all more than our jobs. So, I think that's absolutely right. One thing that you mentioned that I actually wanted to ask all of you about is mentors, mentorship, and and specifically finding mentors and being mentored. What do you wish that you'd known about that as a very young lawyer, as a first and second-year lawyer? And Jess, we'll start with you and then Danny and then Sylvia.
2: I guess
3: what I wished I knew back in law school was that you should probably try to seek out someone like that when you first start. It might just happen upon you. Like, I've been lucky enough to just have great coworkers that can be my mentors, but to at least try to seek it out at first because they become a great resource for you. When I was at a much bigger firm, they had a whole program of mentorship. Everything was very structured. And it might not be for everyone to have it structured that way because even when they say, like, you can be open with me, you can talk about your problems, I know that some associates are still not going to be comfortable with that. So... I always encourage younger attorneys to try to seek out people that they are comfortable with. We had, for example, when I worked at a mid-law firm, they had a whole um, mentorship program. You had someone assigned to you that wasn't in your area of practice, so there was no kind of conflict there. And they just, you know, you do like a lunch every quarter or something and they catch up. But it's it was just so artificial that it just didn't work. My mentor was a nice guy. I have no doubt that he was open to helping me out. It just didn't feel like there was a natural fit there. So when it's like that, you just kind of tend to gravitate towards people that you believe are a fit. And there's nothing wrong with that as well. Especially, I think, for female attorneys, having a male mentor, it may not be the most beneficial to you because some of the advice that We get as attorneys, it might come from a different angle when you're a female attorney. We had, uh, for example, we had a discussion where when you talk to a male attorney, they're like, kind of like, oh, what do you do when you make a mistake? Like a male attorney that we had as a, a part of the mentorship program just said, own up to it and move on. And all of our female associates were like, that's not how our brains work. Like we kind of, we kind of hold it in and we worry about it and worry about it still. And the female partner who we talked about, like there's a more understanding of that, that for us and our personality type, it was just, it's just harder for us to just quote unquote, own up to it and move on. Sometimes it's a little hard for us to move on from one of our mistakes and to work out that process with someone that you feel more comfortable with is a lot better than the structured attorney approach that, I mean, it's great that firms offer it, but I would encourage people to probably seek out a mentor on their own as well, just as a, like in addition to, because it, it can't hurt, you know, it's also networking and it can't hurt to just know more people and get their input when it comes to some of the hard things, like when you do make a mistake.
1: And, you know, actually, that is the last thing we're going to talk about is mistakes, because mm-hmm. <laughs> we've all made them. <laughs> but Diddy, what do you think about mentors, mentorship? What do you look for? Or what did you look for in trying to find a mentor if you have one?
0: You know, I think I have several mentors in kind of different areas of just firm life and being a lawyer and You know, even a first-time mom, I feel like that brought me to a new mentor. But what I wish I would have known as a law student is how important that mentor is, not just in you being a better lawyer, but to your success in wherever it is you're working, especially with females and minorities. You know, there's so much research that says when you don't have a good mentor, that person to go to bat for you, that that lack of having someone be your champion is one of the reasons why women and minorities You know, move forward at a slower pace than men do because men naturally form those mentor relationships a bit easier in the workplace. They naturally have someone who will be that person to stand up for them and go to bat. So getting a mentor is a lot more than just trying to figure out how to win a case. I mean, it is part of trying to be successful in where you're at. So I I really wish I'd known that more earlier on, though I've been really blessed, I think, with all of those around me. And to kind of talk a little bit about what Jess mentioned, I think you want to find at least one of your mentors who is outside of your chain of command. You want at least one of your mentors who you feel comfortable really talking about something that you may be dealing with in one of your cases without that fear that, you know, they may come in and and tell someone the wrong thing or that whatever it is. If they're outside of that chain of command, you feel a little bit easier about speaking to them about those problems and getting advice you know, from a different
1: perspective.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Sylvia? Sure. Um, Well, I mean, I touched upon mentorship a little bit earlier. So, you know, I, I will defer to those comments from the previous discussion, but I'll also say, you know, they are important. Some of them, they happen naturally. And, you know, you want to hone those relationships, right? Because one thing that I guess I thought in the beginning was that A mentor is kind of like a Mr. Miyagi situation, you know, like somebody that taught you everything. But, you know, that's that's not necessarily the case if we're being realistic about it because they have their own practices. They're usually busy. If they're a great mentor, you know, they've got a lot going on. And in addition to their personal lives. So I can use mine as a sounding board, you know, when I can. But you also have to remember to maintain and hone in that relationship. And that communication is a two way street. Right. Check in with them every now and then. I like to uh, you know, keep on top of their careers if they win an award, if they write an article. I'll even reach out to them and be like, hey, congratulations, or hey, I saw this. Because like I said, even though the advice may be a one-way street, more often than not, the communication is a two-way street. So that's something that I wish I kind of thought about beforehand.
1: Yeah, I think that's great advice, actually, from all of you. And I know that I've been just so lucky to have some great Mentors, I think, somewhat unusually, maybe even given what Jess mentioned, all of my mentors are are men, (laughs) but but they're lovely and they're amazing, and I'm I'm just you know, and and they're actually all you know the judges I clerked for, and then there's you know, um, another lawyer who kind of took me under his wing. So so I've been lucky to have them, and and so that's why I I try to bring that up, especially you know when talking to younger lawyers. So the last topic that I want to bring up with all of you is mistakes you know, we've all made them professionally. And I know that that was something that was really stressful to me in my first year of practice, for sure, at a firm. And then my second year of practice was actually my first year as a criminal prosecutor, right? So I was just, I was super worried about making mistakes all the time. So what do you wish that you had known about how to handle mistakes? So Sylvia, let's start with you and then Jess and then Danny.
2: So Sonia here, what's funny is that when Jess was talking earlier about mentors and, you know, finding the right one, a phrase that she used was own up to it, you know, and that's actually something that I find, you know, relevant here since she was also talking about mistakes. And I've always tried to be an own up to a kind of person because, you know, it's it's better than shifting. It's better than you know, even, you know, lying or anything like that, which the judges appreciate, partners appreciate, and everybody appreciates, and you want to focus on trying to offer a solution. But, as also just alluded to, you know, sometimes it's, it's hard mentally, right, and stress-wise, because you keep thinking about it. Oh my gosh, I made the mistake. Oh my gosh, you know what's the judge going to say? What's going to happen? And you keep going on and on. Or at least, you know, some of us do. And one thing that I wish I could have done earlier, or that I knew about earlier is how to, you know, handle that to the best that we can at least because it is not healthy. You know, it's only hurting yourself if you overanalyze and the other person is probably not even worrying about that mistake as much as you are, right? Uh, so just focus on the solution and try to be solution based. And the one thing that I've also found to kind of help recharge me and take my mind off of things to the extent that I can is physical exercise. You know, take a walk. Like when they say, hey, take a walk, that actually does work. At least, you know, for me it's worked. <laughs> take a hike. <laughs> go go on a bike ride, whatever. It kind of just helps recharge you a little bit.
1: Okay. Yeah. That I think that's I think that's all great advice. Uh, (laughs) Uh, Jess, what about you with mistakes? Uh, One thing I
3: probably would have told my younger law school self would be that it's okay to mess up once in a while. And even if you, I just know myself as being hung up on it for a little while, even though, Mm -hmm. you know, it might've been resolved that no one really actually cared about it except for me. It's still, Mm -hmm. I'm still hung up on it because that's just how I am. And, that's okay too to an extent just you know just know that you have people to fall back on you have your partner who caught the mistake you learn your lessons from that mistake and you make sure that next time it doesn't happen um i've been lucky enough to not make mistakes that end something for a client you know or get legal advice that was so bad that, you know, it caused some sort of liability for it. it, I've been lucky enough that that's never happened. But, you know, maybe I cited to a case that was overturned, I cited to a statute that was, that was stricken and, and updated or something like that. Or maybe I put the wrong date on a deadline, thankfully, earlier than the actual deadline. But, Those things, I mean, they're going to happen and all you can do is just say, okay, like this happened. Why did it happen? Why did I miss this overruled case? i relied too much on Lexus. They didn't update it fast enough. So next time I'm going to have to do my separate research for it or I got the deadline wrong. Why did I get the deadline wrong? And just kind of figure it out from there because, you know, it's going to happen and I know that those things, they might seem a big deal at the moment, but honestly, all of the partners I've worked with where they do catch my mistakes, they stop thinking about it after you correct it, really. <laughs> and I don't see it on performance reviews, really. like that, oh, you cited to a wrong case and that one pleading you made, It's it just doesn't happen. But it's a good chance for you to look back at your what you did and come up with a solution. And of course, you're, you have your mentors there, you have your, the partner there as well to help you if you ask for it, to help you so you don't
1: make that mistake again. So, Danny, what, what about you with mistakes? And, and again, I'm, like, I'm particularly interested in this because you're a partner at a firm now.
0: <laughs> An early no is better than a yes and a late product. You know, most of what we see consistently as associate mistakes are blowing internal deadlines. You know, a partner will give an assignment and have a deadline, and the associate says, yes, I got it, I will do it, and I'll get it to you by that deadline, and then they don't. So that seems to be a common theme in what we see, and that's the advice, is on the front end, if you do not have the bandwidth to meet that deadline, telling them on the front end, I can't meet that deadline, is way better then missing that internal deadline and then going back to them after the fact and saying, I know I said I would do this for you by this date, but I I haven't been able to do it now. Deadline expectation is key in that sense, you know? And I I understand completely, like you feel like you can't say no to projects or assignments I feel like when you're a young associate, but you still need to at least be clear about your timeframes and your caseload and whether you can make an internal deadline. And if you can't, tell them up front. And they may say, you know what, I'd said Friday, but really I'm not going to look at it till Monday or Tuesday. Or they may right off the bat say that was, you know, not a deadline that I actually need. Or they may say, I appreciate it. I'm going to just go ahead and ask someone else because I can't wait and have this three or four days late. So that would be my advice as far as mistakes. Almost all the mistakes that I see with associates deal with deadlines. Just be upfront about your workload, about your ability to meet a deadline. And that is a much easier situation than when you're on the back end, you know, asking for extensions and then you're late and you're late because you still have other projects to work on. Those situations never turn out pretty. And, you know, the associate does much better when they say no, just off the bat.
1: Well, I think that's great advice. This has been a fantastic conversation. I'm grateful to each of you for taking the time to share some wisdom and knowledge with the newer members of our profession that you had to work hard to gain. Um, You had so much great insight to share, so thank you.
2: Thank you, Sonia. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Sonia. And that's our show. Thank you to Danielle
1: Burrell, Sylvia Mansour, and Jess Arena for joining me on this episode. I hope their advice was helpful to you, regardless of how many years you've been practicing law. This episode was written by me and produced by me and Lawrence Coletti. Edit and mixed by Adam Lockwood. Until next time, I'm Sonia Russo, and this is Young Lawyer Rising from the American Bar Association Young Lawyers Division.